0: Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Oncology Journal Club podcast. You're here with Rachel Babin and the OJC team. Do you remember dropping an old coin into a glass of cola? An old experiment where we would marvel as the corrosive sugary drink stripped off the dirt to reveal a shiny new dollar. This always made me think, what is this drink doing to my insides? And I have to say, it really did put me off drinking soda. Do you think sugary drinks could be responsible for the increased rates of colorectal cancer that we're seeing in young adults? Hans Prennan finds out. Craig Underhill talks us through the Titan study and the problem of not acknowledging investigators. And Eva Segeloff talks to Christy Milley about getting meaningful engagement from consumers. You'll also hear the amazing article of the week, the final installment of Eva's manifesto for good trial design, and some wonderfully quirky quick bites too. For weekly news and podcast updates, subscribe to the Oncology Newsletter on oncologynews.com.au. It's free and it's a great way to support the OJC. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Podcast.
1: G'day, g'day, g'day. It's lovely to see you, my friends. Hands over in Europe. Is the sun shining?
2: This weekend, finally, we will see some sun. So I'm looking forward to that.
1: How was May?
2: May was, I think, the most, yeah, the coldest May I've ever seen. It was, I think, around 10 degrees a whole month. Rain, rain every day.
1: Ah, sounds like Melbourne. And here we have from sunny Aubrey Wodonga, our friend Craig.
3: I can see the beautiful sunset blue sky outside my window.
1: Gorgeous. Well, we've got another action-packed OJC and nothing better than to sit around and chew the fat about the articles of the week. I have a question for you, though, Hans, about the practice in Europe of involving consumers in research grants, in committees in the hospital? What's the attitude over there?
2: I must say, Eva, that there is some kind of evolution there because when submitting for a grant, especially in the field of cancer, so not in all types of research, that it's now obligatory to have some advice from a consumer group. And they keep the advice into account for the decision if you get the grant, yes or no. It's not everywhere, but you see that it has changed. So that's why also our hospital have now a, a specific consumer group that they put together for when we submit a grant that they can give some kind of advice. It's not really like that in the committees. And I think it's it's a good and a bad thing because the good thing is that consumers look at it on a different way maybe if we think it's interesting for doing research on some topic that they think it's completely irrelevant but the problem is that they don't always understand what is important so that's that's i think it it flips in both ways
1: well it's interesting you've said that because i was actually fascinated with an article that just came out exactly looking at the role of consumers and that leads us to our very special guest interview So welcome, Christy, to Oncology Journal Club. This is going to be a great interview. Thank you so much for having me, Eva. I'm very excited. So Christy, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write the paper that we have picked as one of our discussion papers this week. Certainly.
4: I'm an early career researcher and I come from a lab background. So my PhD was actually in comparative oncology looking at Dogs as a model for breast cancer in women. And I moved to the organisation that I now work for, which is very different, which is PC4. where the Primary Care Collaborative Cancer Clinical Trials Group. And it's a mouthful, so we always just say PC4. But coming from that background and then moving into primary care research the idea of consumer engagement was quite new to me because my consumers were dogs. It wasn't something I'd thought about and it felt like a great opportunity being new in the role, being national manager to take on a project that looked at how my organisation had engaged in consumer engagement and the outcomes would give me opportunities to improvement but it was a learning experience for me the whole way through as well. So that's really why we decided to take it on board and give it a shot.
1: Fantastic. So you published an original research paper with your colleagues from your PC4 group entitled Long-Term Consumer Involvement in Cancer Research, Working Towards Partnership. And I think this is of great interest because I don't know anyone who doesn't think that consumer engagement and involvement from Absolutely grassroots in everything to do with cancer care isn't important, but it's how we do it. How do we do it so it's not tokenistic? How do we do it so that the consumer really does represent the very broad range of patients and families that we encounter?
4: I think how we do consumer engagement and how we do it well is the million dollar question, and I think there's so many ways to do it and so many elements that you can build in. And so for our study, what we were interested in and what we think differentiates us from what's already out there in the literature is that we wanted to look at consumer engagement in our community advisory group that had been in existence for nearly a decade. So many of these consumers had been working with us for up to 10 years, and we were really interested in that long-term aspect. How do you keep consumers engaged with you? I wanted to know what we were doing right you know, facilitators and what we were doing wrong the barriers. And when we look at what's out there in the literature at the moment, most of it is around the setup, the initiation of consumer engagement, how you as a group or an organisation might think about making those first steps into consumer engagement. And what we really wanted to look at was how do you keep that going? What's going to make you successful in the long term?
1: So, Christy, Tell us in detail what you did in the study and which consumer groups you engaged and what you all talked about. So we engaged with our own community advisory group, the PC4CAG,
4: and originally our community advisory group was also shared with another clinical trials group, POCOG, which you may know that work in the psycho-oncology field. And what we did was a qualitative study where we identified TAG members that were either still current members or had recently resigned and we interviewed them about their experiences with our group over the past however long they had been with us and to complement those qualitative interviews we also undertook an audit of all of our internal documentation and we also looked for references in minutes and workshop events that also had direct feedback from community members about their experience with us where they may be raising issues or things that they'd like to see PC4 doing. And we pulled that data together and then undertook a thematic analysis to look at barriers and facilitators from those
1: consumers' point of view. So, Christy, in layman's terms, what do consumers least like about how they interact with oncologists and the hospital system in terms of their input, not into direct care, but their input into research or systems change?
4: I think I'll answer that from the perspective of their engagement with us as an organisation. Specifically talking about oncologists or researchers or people, you know, developing research, they actually had really glowing responses about their experience. One of the things that they felt PC4 did really well was in meetings and workshops that we coordinated that involved community members from our CAG, along with researchers, oncologists, GPs, nurses, that they felt equal in all of their engagements with different healthcare professionals. They felt that their voice was heard and that the comments they made were respected and taken on board by the researchers and incorporated into that development of the research project that they were helping to design barriers around that were more about pressure it was about balancing their life you know their volunteer life their family life together and thinking about research development this particularly came forward in you know, the pressure that researchers have to get a grant in and then that flows on to consumers having a short turnaround time to provide input. And that was one of the biggest negatives that they felt was this pressure to get a response quickly because a researcher needed it regardless of what else was going on in their life
1: at the time. Christy, I think there's a little secret that I <laughs> that the researchers don't enjoy doing it at the last minute anyway, but either. <laughs> But that's always how it happens. But, yes, that would be quite an impost and I can confess to being guilty and ringing up either for my group or on behalf of someone else giving the consumer a very short time. And I can understand how that would be a little bit insulting even because it's as if they don't need to understand it because there's not enough time to do that.
4: I think you're right and if you extend that idea a little bit because – A big part of consumer engagement is meaningful engagement. And when you ask consumers to do something on that tight timeline, they tend to feel then that their input is tokenistic and it works against you in the long run because they don't think you're listening.
1: And can I ask the issue of consumer training and how a consumer really takes on that very heavy responsibility of representing everyone and not just their own experience?
4: That was a big issue that came out, I think, in two ways from our interviews. The first around training was that PC4 early on in the development of our advisory group employed a buddy system. And so community members had a friend in the group that when they were reviewing concepts or doing something new for the first time, they had somebody to talk to. And that was a, a, a limited program. It ran for a couple of years. But the nice thing was that down the track, those buddies still tended to talk to each other when they were querying things that they might be looking at in a research project. The second element of training as well was that consumers felt uncomfortable even five, six, seven years down the track when they'd been with us providing input on a concept that might be outside of their lived experience. And one of the domains of the Cancer Australia framework that we used in our analysis is around capable consumers and the idea that a consumer both actively looks for opportunities to continue to develop their understanding of this area, but also that the organisation that they work for continues to provide opportunities for learning and training as well. And for us, that was actually a barrier that maybe we hadn't been addressing very well. A lot of them did say, you know, sometimes I just don't feel like I contribute to this. And it's something that we've taken on board and tried to address moving forward after this paper.
1: So there's nothing like having skin in the game and in fact I'm not sure Christy if you listen to our OJC podcast when the cancer clinician gets cancer but if you haven't and for those listeners who haven't highly recommended really the experience of three people who are directly involved in patient care and worse so when they got their cancer and how it affected them. So just a little gratuitous plug in there, OJC, episode 32. Christy, do you have any comment from the point of view of cancer clinicians who become consumers rather than the other way around? Not a cancer clinician, I suppose,
4: being in primary care We do actually have a community member in our group that was a GP, being primary care. He provides his input solely from his interest and his experience in cancer and tries where he can to remove that background, his medical background, and think solely as as a cancer survivor, what can I contribute to this? But I know that he definitely struggles at time, and he loves, he absolutely loves to ask questions that stump the other GPs and catch them in their trial design. He loves it.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. And in our podcast, we also heard about trying to separate and divide, but it's the same person. So it's not always that easy. Look, Christy, it's been really wonderful interviewing you. It's a really important topic. I hope that everybody reads the paper on the link in our Oncology Journal Club podcast to our website and we'll hopefully speak to you again in the near future. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me
4: and if I could just as a last comment because I think for me this piece was a real learning study and we're talking about people maybe moving into and trying consumer engagement is that what we learned from this study really is that tiny steps make a big difference and any any steps that you make to try to start to bring consumers into the development of your research and the conduct of a trial from the idea through to dissemination makes a world of difference. Thank you so much for having me on. Great point. Thank you.
3: Well, that was amazing, Eva. That was an amazing interview. Well done.
1: Thanks, Craig. Let's go to your main paper for the week. Over to you, Craig.
3: So what I chose, Eva, was apalutamide in patients with metastatic rate sensitive prostate cancer. It's the final survival analysis of the randomized double-blind phase three study called TITAN. So there were sites in Australia for that study, including our own. Big shout out to the non-acknowledgement in the paper to the the investigators. Can I say that?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. We've had a lot of recent experience with non-acknowledgement of involvements, including in a local IIT that we happened to put over a third of the patients on. So very timely.
3: Yeah, so uh, I sort of by the by, but I saw a couple of patients in the last couple of weeks since this was published, and I thought, hmm, it would have been nice to, A, get sent a copy, and B, been listed in the acknowledgements for our site. So we could do a whole podcast on that, maybe. So anyway, this is a good study. This was in patients with metastatic castrate sensitive prostate cancer who received androgen deprivation therapy they can have received adjuvant docetaxel, which was the standard of care, and they're randomized to receive apalutamide or placebo, and the interim analysis was previously published in the New England Journal. This is a final analysis in the JCO in March this year. So it showed big benefit despite crossover for the apalutamide plus ADT versus the ADT plus placebo. So. There was a large study, 1,000 patients randomised one-to-one to receive 240 milligrams every day of apalutamide or placebo plus the ADT. They allowed crossover and analysed for that. So with a medium follow-up of 44 months, the median duration treatment was 39 months for those on apalutamide, 20 months on placebo, and 15 months for the crossover patients. Compared with placebo, Apalutamide plus ADT significantly reduced the risk of death by 35%. So the median overall survival was not reached in the patients receiving apalutamide versus 52 months for placebo. And again, if you can't see the curves. We can again do some interpretive singing or something, rapping to describe the curves. But they're really quite impressive with big differences, even in the patients who had crossed over. So Quality of life was maintained throughout the study. So it adds to a body of evidence for these androgen signaling inhibitors, or ASIs as they're called. So the others in this class are enzalutamide and apiraterone. So this is the concept of adding them early when patients are still have metastatic disease, but are castrate sensitive, and there are some big survival benefits. But unfortunately, the cost of these in- interventions are are enormous.
1: So how much? I think it's in the order of,
3: I don't know, because I've stopped asking, but I think it's in the order of $6,000 a month, right? And so if you've got someone on it for several years, do the maths. It's a hugely expensive intervention. So unless the price of these drugs comes down substantially, then I can't see that in any health system such as Australia where we we use cost-effectiveness and price, as a trigger for listing drugs, I can't see that these in the current price environment will be approved despite those big differences in survival.
1: But don't you think there's a problem in that we only measure the cost of the drug? We don't measure cost of... The opportunity cost, we don't measure the fact that the person's still looking after the grandchildren or even at work or not using hospital facilities. So just an absolute, the drug costs this and this drug costs that and this is more expensive. So we've got to get better at that, don't we?
3: I don't think that's maybe entirely correct here because I think in the the Australian system, in the You know, pharmaceutical benefit scheme. They do actually look at that information. So it's quality adjusted life years saved. So I think all of that kind of information is submitted and considered.
1: No, quality doesn't really include opportunity costs. There's no economic cost for someone continuing to work, or as I said, looking after. Grandchildren, so that the mother could return to work, perhaps all of that is is the quality adjusted life years. We should do a little episode on it.
3: Yeah, that's a great idea. I just like a rough calculation. If you just said six thousand a month times twelve times four years, that's two hundred eighty eight thousand dollars. So, it's quite an expensive intervention.
1: Yeah, but all interventions are. I mean, we it's all much cheaper if we're mm. all dead.
3: Yeah. So I think, you know, I think Hans is
1: doing that intervention. Are you there, Hans?
3: (laughs) (laughs) And a little bit of a segue into our access program update. So, in a slightly different population, which is in the castrate resistant population with no measurable metastatic disease, so patients with a rising PSA, you can't see on conventional CT or bone scan metastases, there is now an access program for darolutamide. So get in touch with your Bayer representative for the Australian listeners if you're interested in that. So this is a kind of a niche population because now with the PSMA scans, a lot of patients would have, we find metastatic disease. So this non-metastatic but castrate resistant with a rising PSA is probably a niche area. But again, good data to have that early intervention with these drugs.
1: Thank you, Craig. Well, Hans, have you got another enlightening article for us? Hans, actually, Hans, can someone wake him up?
2: Hans actually, yes, yes, I'm awake. I'm oh, here. There you are. <laughs> so my topic this week is are sugar sweetened beverages contributing to the rising occurrence of colon cancer in young adults? As you know, I discussed in a previous podcast that, in, at least in some countries, the incidence of colon cancer has increased. But if you look at older people, we see a stabilizing or failing rate. So the question is, why do we have an increased incidence in young adults? So, of course, if I ask you what are the possible risk factors, I think you will answer unhealthy diets, maybe, and maybe sugar-sweetened beverages, but then again, if you look at previous studies, they found no association between soft drinks and colon cancer. But they have focused on older onset colon cancer. So the question is, in Guts uh, her et al., he examined the association between sugar-sweetened beverages intake and early onset colon cancer. And he found actually, compared with those consuming Less than one serving of soft drinks a week, so those that barely drink soft drinks, and the ones that drink more than two a day, that he found a twofold greater risk of colon cancer in young adults.
1: So, you know, Hans, there used to be that big ad campaign, Coke ads, Life. Yeah. So you mean they were lying?
2: Yeah, indeed. So I would sue them. I would sue them.
1: Really? I I can't say Coke kills. Go ahead.
2: Let me finish my story. So they also found an association between the use of sugar-sweetened beverage in adolescents, so also in kids and young adults, and early onset colon cancer. So there I start to get a little bit worried because I have to admit, as a child, that I drank quite some Coke, thanks to all the commercials. The good thing is that they found no association with artificially sweetened beverages. So at a certain point, this seems to be safe. So why would there be this relation? You could also say more sugar gives weight gain, gives obesity. And these are known risk factors due to insulin resistance, chronic inflammation, etc. And also we know, but this is in mice, so you have to be careful, that high fructose promotes intestinal tumour growth. There have been papers, very nice papers about this, independently of obesity. So this fructose high concentrations is also not good. But I have to admit there are some limitations of this study published in gut because the association between more soft drinks and physically inactive and poor diet quality, so there's a risk of bias. This is an observational study, so you cannot rule out that the ones that drink a lot of soft drinks are also maybe more inactive, maybe eat more McDonald's, whatever. And also, there is quite some low number of incident early-onset colon cancer in this cohort study. And finally, there was also no data on the pathogenic germline mutations for the inherited syndrome. So maybe these younger patients, some of them inherited syndrome, so we, we don't know this. So it's always the conclusion of every paper is, needs to be validated in larger studies across different populations. Back to you, Eva.
1: Oh, thanks, Hans. Hey, Craig, I reckon Hans drank lots of Coke because he thought he wanted to be one of those cool guys on the ad. What do you reckon?
3: (laughs) Yeah, you know, pretending he was at a Nazi beach sliding down the sand.
1: Absolutely. Okay, so, look, it's my turn, I think, and I am going to finish off The Trip Ditch, the third instalment of the amazingly excellent paper by our friend Bish and co, looking at magnitude of clinical benefit scoring, but as I've said before, really a manifest of how to do a good trial and all the tricks and traps of how to interpret trials that may seem good but may have some serious methodological flaws. A plug for our previous two episodes where I discussed this paper, I've discussed it in two previous episodes, here is the final two issues that were highlighted in the paper in view of looking at biases in study design, implementation and data analysis that would distort the appraisal of clinical benefit and therefore the ESMO magnitude of clinical benefit scale. So, there were two issues in the analysis of trial data. One relates to conjectural findings from exploratory and unplanned analyses. Now, we know that findings that are based on pre-specified endpoints and the statistical plan are called confirmatory findings. But boy, don't we hear a lot of post hoc and exploratory analyses, and these are called conjectural findings. Now, this usually happens when the, the primary analysis population shows either a very statistically significant but small magnitude benefit or where you don't even have a benefit and then there's an attempt to go back and define find a subpopulation where the treatment might be effective. So, In the ESMO magnitude of clinical benefit scale version one, the current version, you're allowed no more than three pre-specified subgroups and you're not allowed conjectural findings, one exception, and that is plausible new genetic biomarkers. So the illustrative case is the affinity trial, which looked at adjuvant pertuzumab in HER2-positive cancer There were 12 post hoc subgroup analyses and they eventually found it was better in patients who had node positive disease. Now, the ESMO clinical benefits guide only scored the confirmatory findings and not these conjectural findings. However, for studies like the IPASS trial looking at EGFR mutation status in lung cancer and anti-EGFR therapy, or the same with the anti-EGFR monoclonal antibodies in the prime and crystal colorectal studies, then the conjectural findings are highly significant because they're based on biologically plausible subset. So, shortcoming is that the magnitude of clinical benefit scale does not state this exception for post-hoc biomarkers and that will be reviewed in the next version. So my final piece from this wonderful paper is about informative censoring. So in clinical trials, the term censoring refers to patients who don't complete the study in full and they drop out without further measurement. Obviously, if this is balanced between the arms in a superiority study, you assume this doesn't impact the results, and this is called uninformative censoring. But when patients discontinue for reasons related to the study drug, so side effects, that assumption won't hold, and that's called informative censoring. So, when you have a drug that causes a lot of toxicity and a lot of patients drop out, this will biopsy the result. So, the Bolero 2 study is the illustrative case given. Examestane plus everolimus or placebo in metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer. There was a 6.5 month benefit in median PFS, hazard ratio 0.36, with the 95% CI. 0.27 to 0.47. But if you take into the fact that 19% of patients in the Everolimus arm discontinued treatment due to adverse effects versus 4% in the placebo arm and you reanalyse and you use an endpoint that includes discontinuation as well as progression or death, so that's time to treatment failure, that median gain comes down from six point five months to one point one months, which was not statistically significant. And so this will also be included in version two of the ESMO clinical benefits scale. So that has been an epic, a Old Testament, New Testament, and beyond of clinical trials. And
3: the Quran.
1: And the Quran. The Bible, the the Kama Sutra, everything. Kudos to the authors. Everybody should read the paper. I think it's time for quick bites. Hans, what have you got?
2: Actually, I've selected two quick bites this week. The first one is in Clinical Cancer Research, published 2021, end of April, by a Japanese group. And you know that we give PD-1 blockade in MSI high tumors, especially in GI tumors, Uh, For example, uh, it can be gastric or colon or whatever. And they have analyzed in 45 patients with gastric, colon, colangio, pancreatic, and duodenum, all MSI high, treated with anti PD1. They wanted to know whether there are some kind of biomarkers to predict response, because as you know, it's around, let's say, 50% that respond uh, sometimes. So they performed whole exome sequencing or targeted NGS. And they found that among all the common alterations, only P10 mutations were associated with response. So it means lower response when you had a P10 mutation. So it was around 12 versus 55% response and also much shorter PFS. The second thing they found was that a low TMB also had lower response rate in comparison with high TMB. And this was black and white. This was zero versus 50%. So it seems in this, in their small study, that TMB is a very good marker. And surprisingly, low TMB and P10 mutations seemed mutually exclusive. So they might both be negative predictors. So I think a very interesting study, which has to be confirmed in a larger uh, study. The second paper I selected is in Lancet Oncology, May 2021 by Salvatore Siena. And it's actually a paper that you might all know, but I want to repeat it. It's the DESTINY. CRC one trial. We discussed it previously on podcasts, but now it's published finally. It's about trastuzumab deruxtecan in HER two expressing metastatic colon cancer. Sorry, what is it? I knew you were gonna ask this. It's trastuzumab <laughs> deruxtecan.
1: Regalagalex. Yeah. Reg-a-lug-a-lux. So it's an
2: open label phase two trial in HER two positive colon cancer, so you know amplifications of HER2 occur in about 2-3%. And these patients, and this is important, so you have to remember, they have to be RAS and BRAF wild type because I sometimes see patients that have HER2 or RAS mutated and those are not included in these trials. So the patients had to be progressive after two or more regimens, so let's say the chemorefractory ones, and they could have had HER2-targeted agents, so this is also important. They included 78 patients, and just to be very brief, they found a response in about one out of two patients, around 50% response. The only thing you have to keep in mind is a side effect of special interest because there was some pneumonitis and interstitial lung disease in five patients. So this is a side effect which you have to keep really in mind when treating patients with this drug, which is a very good drug.
1: Well, it's much higher incidence when it's used in the breast cancer population. So that mechanism and, and why that is, is still to be worked out, I think.
2: Yeah, but it's something we have to really be alert for.
1: Be alert, Craig. Wake up. I'm have awake. So ed- Eva.
3: And Eva, what are your quick bites? <laughs> okay.
1: So... Here you go, our favourite topic. This was in JAMA Network Open called Gender Differences in Physician Use of Social Media for Professional Advancement. So this was a survey that had about 577 respondents, 56 of whom identified as women About 75% were white physicians, not trainees. About equal number of men and women reported using social media to build their professional network. And about equal number, around about 68%, agreed that social media use led to increased collaborations. Now, the use of social media professionally improved job satisfaction for men in 57% versus women in 49%. Compared to men, however, women physicians were less likely to report that social media use expanded their research portfolio or resulted in speaking engagements or scholarship opportunities women were more likely to report that using social media built a support network. So the conclusion is that social media use by women physicians may not improve gender equity, and the same biases that lead to fewer opportunities for professional advancement for women appear to persist in the online physician community. So. We're
3: not touching that. We're not touching (laughs) it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Tweet that one. All right, a couple more quick bites. Second paper is the GO2 Phase 3 randomized clinical trial published in JAMA Oncology, the effect of reduced-intensity chemotherapy with oxaliplatin and capecitabine on quality of life and cancer control amongst older and frail patients with advanced gastroesophageal cancer. This trial had a randomization to three different levels of chemo doses and then a randomization if the clinician was not sure whether to treat or not, to chemo or not treat or no chemo. And the bottom line, reduced intensity chemo provided a better patient experience without significantly compromising cancer control and should be considered for older or frail patients. Everyone should have a read of that because we're constantly facing this issue and we've talked about it many times on OJC. So, Craig, you're going to tell us what to do with adults who drink a lot of Coke.
3: Exactly. So speaking of Coke, and it segues into you, what you just talked about, Eva, because, again, it's a practical everyday issue and it's an ASCO guideline update on the appropriate systemic therapy dosing for obese adults with cancer. So it's basically, without sort of sounding old, you know, when I was training, like a lot of the patients had a BSA of 1.5 to 1.8, but who has that now? And it's always an issue like, oh, I'm giving them big doses because of their BSA. But basically the updated guidelines is that we should dose people Based on that full weight, we used to think about you know adjusting for ideal do- ideal weight, but we shouldn't do that. But it does point out that future research is needed, including the impact of weight loss and other measures of body composition on optimal dosing and more customized dosing based on PK or pharmacogenetic factors. So you know our dosing is quite empirical but the evidence we have to date based on 60 studies including this review is that we should give full body size based dosing of chemotherapy to obese and non-obese patients
2: so it means also if you go if you go above 2 you also because sometimes if it's above 2 we give cut off at 2 so you have to go higher
1: so that's capping
3: Well, yeah saying don't cut it off yeah
1: yeah, no capping. So I no had capping. this question from a registrar. I read that paper too, Craig, so great minds think alike. It <laughs> says adjust your dose because of toxicity but not because of weight. Mm.
3: So, you know, and I get a bit nervous when you have people with BSAs 2.2, 2.3, et cetera, but the data suggests that you should go for it.
1: And particularly in adjuvant therapy, there's data that it, you know there is a compromise on curability if you cap your dose. Did you have another quick bite?
3: I I did or another a
1: very big bite. Speaking of bites, <laughs> go ahead.
3: So the other one is Australian recommendations for the management of hepatocellular carcinoma, a consensus statement published in the MJA. So a group of clinicians, Australia, hepatologists, radiologists, surgeon. Medical oncologist, palliative care physician, primary care physician did a modified Delphi process to reach consensus on 31 recommendations for the multidisciplinary management of hepatocellular carcinoma in the Australian setting. So, another guideline for people to look at. And then the last one is a paper in the European Journal of Cancer entitled Outcomes of Patients with Solid Tumor Malignancies Treated with First Line immuno-oncology agents who don't meet eligibility criteria for clinical trials. So this sort of segues a little bit into your amazing masterpiece over the last two episodes, Eva, on trial design. It's just pointing out that people who didn't qualify for clinical trials, their outcomes were worse, and a recommendation just to temper a little bit the enthusiasm of IO for those Patients who would normally have been excluded from clinical trials are the older, poor performance score patients.
1: It's always sobering in the clinic, isn't it, when someone comes to you and says, someone with advanced pancreas cancer, ECOG 2, 2.5. And, you, you know, I always say, go and read the papers and have a look at how many patients were ECOG 0 or 1 how are you going to give the same therapy to somebody who's, who's ECOG-2? So we just straight away do everything the same, even though patients wouldn't have been eligible. So real-world information is so important, isn't it?
3: Yeah. So then I also include Eva the wacky article of the week, and it was in the right. ASCO post, and it was called Chernobyl at 35 Years an Oncologist Perspective. So it's written by a guy called it's a single author, a guy called Robert Gale, who seems to be a medical expert in nuclear and radiation accidents. And there's a disclaimer from ASCO pointing out that this represents a view of the author, not necessarily that of ASCO. And this guy, Dr. Gale, is a visiting professor, Professor Gale, hematology at the Imperial College London, and a foreign member of the Russian Federation and China Academies of Science and Medical Science. So that's interesting. But he looks at the impact of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster and is there evidence of an excess in cancer. So he firstly says, well, there's 7,000 excess thyroid cancers in children and adolescents living in Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia, which is a hundredfold increased incidence, but they weren't fatal. And there's not a lot of evidence of an increase in leukemia or solid cancer. So we went, oh, well, 40% of us will get cancer anyway. So what's a little bit of an increase from Chernobyl-related radiation? And isn't nuclear energy great? And it might solve the world's climate change problem. So I think quite a controversial view, but, you know, based on some epidemiological evidence about maybe not so much an increase in the risk of cancer in those countries close to the Chernobyl disaster as yet.
1: Amazing. See, you hear it all on the podcast, (laughs) climate change, COCAD's life. I mean, what (laughs) what don't we discuss?
3: Yeah, well, maybe that was a bit out there, that article for the podcast. But anyway. No. Anyway, interesting. Maybe this guy uh, voted for Trump. As well,
1: who knows? Well, politics and medicine are not supposed to combine, but public health, COVID, I mean, they are intricately entwined. Aren't they? How's COVID going over their hands?
2: It's it's finally improving. The numbers are going down also on the intensive care. I think it has to do also with the rate of vaccinating. And we see now that about half of the population is already vaccinated, I guess. So it's going fast now. Great.
1: So just before we go, I'm going to check, boys, that you've done your homework. Line of duty, who is H? Craig? Do we have homework? I'm sorry, Miss Eva, you'll be singing that again. <laughs> okay, hands. who is H?
2: Miss Eva, I did my homework, so H comes from Harvey, so H was... Comes from Harvey, and it's actually J.J. Harvey. I thought it was some kind of singer, but actually, it's a guy that discovered <laughs> the oncogenic Harvey murine sarcoma virus in 1964 and published this in Nature. So now we won't forget where this H comes from,
3: Mr. Harvey. 64 sarcoma. <laughs> we could do a rap.
1: <laughs> no. It's time to end this episode. I'm ending it very quickly. Thank you. Thank you, Hans. Thank you, Craig. Quick, before you wrap.
2: It's a wrap. Thank you, Miss Eva. (laughs) You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au, and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.